Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. Kevin Hogan here. Let's take a look at our top stories. One of President Biden's cabinet members has resigned. That's after he admitted he treated his colleagues disrespectfully. A new report saying labor unions collected tens of millions of dollars in pandemic aid, even though it was supposed to go to small businesses and nonprofits instead. Canada's House of Commons held an emergency debate in response to the ongoing truckers' protest. Supporters and opponents in the parliament spoke out. French President Emmanuel Macron is meeting with Ukraine's leadership in Kiev after an hours-long talk with Putin. He says the next few days will be crucial to de-escalating the standoff in Ukraine. Science advisor Dr. Eric Lander, a member of Biden's cabinet, has resigned. An investigation found evidence he spoke to his colleagues disrespectfully. In his resignation statement, he said that was never his intention, but he takes responsibility. Dr. Eric Lander formerly served as the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. He resigned on Monday evening following a White House investigation. It found that he spoke in a harsh and disrespectful way to his colleagues. The Washington Post first reported on his resignation statement. Lander wrote, I am devastated that I caused hurt to past and present colleagues by the way in which I have spoken to them, to both men and women. That was never my intention. Nonetheless, it is my fault and my responsibility. Fox News obtained an email that said Lander apologized to his staff earlier. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said President Biden accepted Lander's resignation letter, and she said that Biden said Lander will continue to make contributions to the scientific community going forward. Reporters grilled Psaki on why Biden didn't fire Lander after the incident. This is referencing Biden's previous promise to terminate anyone on his team immediately for such behavior. So um, regarding Dr. Lander, um, I wondered if he should have been reprimanded more strongly given the president's um, pledge on his first day of office to, you know, fire anybody who uh, mistreated their employees? Well, let me just give you an overview of what we have done to date. And I know there may be more questions on this, of course, which we welcome. Uh, the president has been crystal clear uh, with all of us about his ex- high expectations of how he and his staff uh, should be creating a respectful work environment. In a tweet, Representative Anna Eshoo said the White House informed her that Advisor Lander would not testify before an upcoming House subcommittee meeting as planned. Labor unions collected tens of millions of dollars in federal pandemic aid, even though they weren't eligible. That's according to a new report. NTD's Jessica Beatty takes a look. Millions of dollars of pandemic relief meant for small businesses and nonprofits actually went to labor unions. According to a new report by the Freedom Foundation, labor groups took in nearly $37 million in taxpayer funds through the Paycheck Protection Program. The program was meant to help businesses keep employees on payroll using loans from the Small Business Administration. Individuals and nonprofit groups were also eligible, but labor unions were not. Despite that, between March 2020 and March 2021, labor unions received up to 226 forgivable loans. At least a dozen teachers' unions and unions representing government employees also received money. The largest single loan in the report went to the Michigan Education Association, a teachers' union that wasn't eligible. That loan was worth $6.4 million. An MEA spokesman told the Epic Times the union applied for the loan, believing that, quote, Doing so was the right decision given the guidelines available at the time and the tremendous uncertainty facing our organization. He said they paid back the loan in full by the end of 2020. 
But while the MEA had that $6 million, that money wasn't available to small businesses that were eligible. The author of the report, Max Ver Nelson, told the Epoch Times that questions remain, including what did the application say and was there any fraudulent information included? Nelson said, at the very least, there was a false claim that the union was qualified to participate. The report urges federal authorities to investigate any inappropriate PPP loans and recover funds improperly paid and prosecute any fraudulent activity. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. New Jersey's governor plans to lift the statewide COVID-19 mask requirement in schools. The mandate will end early next month in a major step toward getting back to normal. I think that if by that time period, if the rates are going down and they can see that, okay, kids are vaccinated, if they have a substantial amount of kids that are vaccinated, I, I don't have a problem with them not wearing the mask at school. Yeah, it's well overdue. They should let the, the students or the kids in class, they shouldn't be wearing masks. I feel like we're going to have that freedom to, you know, have a mask off and be able to breathe and people with asthma, it's hard to with their mask. So I'm excited to, you know, get it off. The National Academy for State Health Policy says New Jersey is one of just a dozen states with mask mandates in schools. New Jersey's rule has been in place since classes resumed in person in September 2020. Both school employees and students will be free from the mandate. Governor Phil Murphy said on Monday it's not a declaration of victory so much as it is acknowledging that the state can live responsibly with the CCP virus. It is not clear whether individual school districts can continue to require masks. During the pandemic, politicians had to make tough decisions. They had to protect public health while minimizing harm to businesses and the economy. Lockdowns were a measure of choice for many jurisdictions. And now a gym owner in New Jersey who made national headlines for defying those lockdown restrictions is running for Congress. Ian Smith, the owner of Attila's Gym, says the government has overstepped its bounds and that the middle class has suffered for it. He tells us why he's running and whether the adversity he faced during the lockdowns is the main reason. You know, I don't know if I would have seen the necessity to run um, because I wouldn't I wouldn't have witnessed everything that we have, um, although I can't say that I would have been sitting by uh, idly during these two years if I didn't have a business. We witnessed um, or I'm sorry, we saw what was wrong very early on. And I think I probably still would have seen that probably would have paid, played a different part. Um, but there's no doubt that the um, Attilas versus Governor Murphy saga has heavily influenced my decision to get into politics. And speaking of Governor Murphy, according to the new Senate president, he says lawmakers are starting to revisit this law that gives the governor these executive powers to impose lockdowns. What do you make of this? They should have revisited a long time ago. Um, Governor Murphy has absolutely abused his emergency powers. These powers are very necessary in times of emergency, but we have clearly witnessed how they can be used out of control. Uh, we've been in an emergency for two years now, and the reality is, is that um, nothing he has shown as far as science and data would ever justify uh, that type of governing. So New Jersey State Senator Joe Panaccio, he criticized COVID lockdown measures. He cited a study that shows the lockdowns in the U.S. and Europe only reduced deaths by 0.2%. Now, I'm not asking you to validate this study. I just want to know, are there some times when business owners need to make sacrifices in order to protect others? You know, we originally shut down just like everybody else. And I think that that was a time that showed that business owners would be willing to. You know, as Americans, there are times when you do have to come together. But the reality is that 
Um, the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic was severely overstated, and the effectiveness of lockdowns was even more severely overstated. Um, it's time to, that we put practical and, and actual um, health measures into place and not the theatrics of mask wearing and social distancing, which the CDC and the government has come out and said that it's it never really made any sense, uh, especially with the social distancing one. Uh, the CDC couldn't even answer where that figure came from. So I'm all for, for practical safety measures. At Attila's gym, we put in a, a safety protocol that we still have in effect to this day that still, um, and even back then, went so far above and beyond what any government was mandating uh, businesses, uh, its own organizations, or even medical facilities to do. Uh, and that's kept 350,000 visits at our facility with a record of no COVID outbreaks with a extensive contact tracing system that we voluntarily put into place. So absolutely businesses can uh, step up to the plate, but you should allow businesses to make good choices on their own. Uh, they will be rewarded by their customers for making them safe and for going the extra mile. That's the way business works. Governor Murphy imposed lockdown measures to slow the spread of the virus. And in 2020, he issued a phased reopening plan based on health metrics like cases, ventilator use, and contact tracing. And while the Johns Hopkins study mentioned earlier found lockdowns to be mostly ineffective, many other studies showed that they worked. California's statewide indoor mask mandate will end next week for everyone who is vaccinated. California was among the first states to require face coverings in public places, which has been in effect since June 2020. Governor Gavin Newsom announced Monday that the mask requirement will expire next Tuesday two days after the state hosts the Super Bowl in Inglewood. However, unvaccinated people must still continue to wear masks indoors, and counties with stricter rules, such as Los Angeles and much of the Bay Area, may still keep the mask mandates in place. Newsom cited a 65% drop in COVID-19 cases since the peak of the Omicron surge. Upcoming elections in Alabama will use a voting map drawn by Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature. That's after the Supreme Court halted an order that had required Alabama to redraw its districts. But the state says this election map separates voting districts along racial lines. A lower court determined in late January that a new congressional electoral map in Alabama disadvantages black voters. They said it also likely violates the Voting Rights Act. The lower court's panel said the state should have two majority black districts instead of one, But the Supreme Court's ruling temporarily stops the lower court's order to redraw the districts. In its emergency application to the Supreme Court, Alabama said it wants to stop the state from using an election map that would sort Alabamans on the basis of race alone. A total of 14 states issued support for the appeal. The Supreme Court is set to hear the full case next fall. Congressman Jamie Raskin has been accused of failing to disclose stock assets owned by his wife in violation of U.S. law. The American Accountability Foundation sent a complaint saying Sarah Bloom Raskin sold almost 200,000 shares in a Colorado tech firm in December 2020, but Congressman Raskin did not report the sale until August 2021. The sale made the Raskins $1.5 million richer. The law requires members of Congress to disclose trades made by themselves their spouses, or their dependent children publicly and quickly. The laws on this were strengthened in 2012 after a wave of congressional insider trading. Congressman Jamie Raskin has acknowledged he took too long to file the financial disclosure, but said it was, in part, due to the death of his son around the same time. 
The watchdog group says this is understandable, but says that tragedy didn't slow the Democratic congressman's efforts in leading impeachment proceedings against President Trump. Sarah Bloom Raskin was recently nominated by President Joe Biden for a top banking regulatory position at the Federal Reserve. The state of Michigan closed down a bridge from Detroit to Canada in the midst of trucker-led protests over vaccine mandates. Truckers and other individuals started congregating on the Ambassador Bridge on Monday night. The busy crossing connects Windsor, Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, Michigan. The Michigan Department of Transportation wrote on Twitter that it had closed the crossing to Canada. At the same time, the Windsor Police Service wrote today that the bridge was reopened to traffic. However, MDOT's Detroit office confirmed that the crossing remains closed on the U.S. side, calling on travelers to use the Port Huron crossing instead. Canada sends 75% of its exports to the United States, and the bridge usually handles around 8,000 trucks a day. More details on the debate over the Canadian trucker protests in an effort to address the trucking blockade in Ottawa, Canada's parliament held an emergency session on Monday. An emergency debate was held in Canada's House of Commons in response to the truckers' protests. On the Liberal side, members were concerned that the demonstrations would veer toward hatred. They promoted a ban on hate symbols. We've seen swastikas and we've seen the Confederate flag. And what do those mean, Mr. Speaker? Well, a swastika is obviously a symbol of the Third Reich. It harkens back to Nazi Germany. Conservative members noted the movement's stated objectives. Canadians from all walks of life have real concerns about how the Liberals have handled this pandemic and want to know what the government is doing to put COVID-19 behind us. Instead of addressing these concerns, the Prime Minister, his government and some in the mainstream media have labelled them as racist, misogynist, extremist, just to avoid scrutiny for the Liberal government's numerous failures. And I think it's objectively the case that Canada's approach when it comes to vaccine mandates is far more draconian than many other countries around the world. For instance, countries in Europe have, a, uh, have an alternative that's based on natural immunity. And yet Canada doesn't seem to recognize that. The session further investigated whether foreign interference is possibly involved in the protests. With the convoy, what we are understanding is that there's a lot of money coming from the United States. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also weighed in during the House debate. He said the truckers' protest has to stop. Fourteen Democrat attorneys general are backing the Mexican government in a lawsuit against American gun manufacturers. They're helping Mexico blame the firms for guns trafficked to Mexican drug cartels. The attorneys general argue that federal laws cannot be used to bar gun manufacturers and dealers from being sued under state consumer laws. The Mexican government names gun manufacturers Smith & Wesson, Beretta, Century Arms, Colt, Glock, Ruger, and Barrett as defendants along with Boston-based arm wholesaler Interstate Arms. The Mexican government claims defendants design, market, distribute, and sell guns in a way they know routinely arm the drug cartels in Mexico. The Mexican government says about 70 to 90 percent of guns recovered at crime scenes in Mexico were trafficked from the United States. The defendants say they didn't help smuggle the firearms to Mexico and that they cannot be sued due to the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. But the AGs say the act can't protect them from being sued under state consumer laws. The U.S. Air Force must pay more than $230 million in damages to survivors and victims' families of a 2017 Texas church massacre. 
is being blamed for failing to flag a conviction that might have prevented the shooting. A federal judge ruled that the gunman wouldn't have been legally able to buy the weapon used in the shooting if the conviction was flagged. More than two dozen people were killed, including eight children. The gunman opened fire during a Sunday service at First Baptist Church of Sutherland, Springs. He later died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. The gunman had served in the Air Force. A U.S. District Judge ruled in July that the Air Force was 60% liable for the attack. He blamed the Air Force for not submitting the gunman's assault conviction during his time in the Air Force to a national database. Under Pentagon rules, information about convictions of military personnel and crimes like assault is supposed to be submitted to the FBI's Criminal Justice Investigation Services Division for inclusion in the National Criminal Information Center database. For unspecified reasons, the Air Force did not provide the information about the man as required. Lawyers for survivors and relatives of those killed had asked for $418 million, while the Justice Department proposed $31.8 million. A Boston police officer who was found dead during a blizzard last week was laid to rest Monday. The sound of bagpipes rang through the air in the town of Braintree as hundreds of Boston police officers showed their respects for Officer John O'Keefe. People lined the streets for hours remembering the devoted son, brother, uncle, and godfather. Officer O'Keefe's girlfriend, Karen Reed, is charged in his death. Police say Reed dropped him off at a party, and when she turned around, She allegedly hit him with her car before driving away. Her attorney says Reed did not know she hit him. Investigators say when they found his body, it had skull fractures and signs of hypothermia. O'Keefe became the guardian of his niece and nephew after their parents died. Reed has pleaded not guilty to multiple charges, including manslaughter. She's due back in court March 1st. The United States is offering a reward of up to $10 million. This for information leading to the location of ISIS-K leader Sanula Ghaffari, and also for information leading to the arrest of those involved in the Kabul airport attack last year. The ISIS-K terrorist group first appeared in 2014. In June 2020, Ghaffari became the leader of the extremist group. He is responsible for approving all ISIS-K operations throughout Afghanistan. In November, the State Department designated Ghaffari as a specially designated global terrorist. The U.S. military says that a single ISIS bomber killed 13 U.S. troops and at least 170 Afghans at Kabul airport last August. U.S. officials said in November they believe ISIS-K could develop the ability to strike outside of Afghanistan within 6 to 12 months. Coming up, U.S. Olympic officials take a proactive approach to athletes' mental health in Beijing, where isolation and pandemic fears have piled on more stress. More soon, here on NTD News. Giant x-ray machines are part of the plan for Super Bowl security. They're to inspect trucks and vehicles entering SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. The x-ray machines can penetrate steel a foot thick. People will soon see large containers and vehicles getting scanned ahead of the Super Bowl at the SoFi Stadium. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection are conducting the security inspection. We use it to identify contraband, weapons, explosives, any items, any products, any merchandise 
or equipment that could cause harm to the American public. The X-ray machines can penetrate a foot of thick material, including steel. The contents of the container, regardless of size, will be visible in the system at a glance. This method is nothing new. The challenges that we're going to face at Super Bowl are the same challenges we face every day at our ports of entry nationwide. Starting February 6th, all containers entering the SoFi Stadium will be scanned one by one. Officials estimate that 250 to 300 conveyances will be inspected per day. To ensure that the players, all the attendees and everyone involved in the event um, not only are safe but that enjoy the game. Super Bowl 56 on February 13th expects to attract 70,000 spectators to watch the Rams take on the Cincinnati Bengals. U.S. Olympic officials say they learned lessons from the Tokyo Games on supporting athletes' mental health and are taking a proactive approach in Beijing where isolation and pandemic fears have piled on more stress. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee conducted mental health screening for anxiety and depression last year. That was to get a sense of where athletes' headspace was prior to the Beijing Games. One of the pieces of feedback we got after Tokyo was, well, I didn't have a crisis, so I didn't, I didn't reach out. And so we were trying to be very clear that we're not here just for crisis. We're there for prevention and maintenance of mental health, just somebody to talk to. As if the stress of competing on the world's biggest sports stage wasn't enough, competitors at the Beijing Games are also contending with isolation and anxiety over whether a positive COVID test could scuttle their Olympic dreams. We have a daily COVID test, and is there any kind of stressors or anxiety about, you know, I've got a competition in a few days, what is that result going to be? Um, some athletes are losing sleep over that. Uh, I think there's some that re readjusted their travel. Um, I think some of our athletes are, are even just staying in their rooms before competing. American figure skater Vincent Joe became the latest to see his Olympic dreams shattered by the pandemic announcing on Monday that he had withdrawn from this week's men's singles competition after testing positive. I have been doing everything in my power to stay free of COVID since the start of the pandemic. I've taken all the precautions I can. I've isolated myself so much that the loneliness I felt in the last month or two has been crushing at times. Routine checks with athletes are part of Team USA's holistic approach, with team building activities, movies, and games also made available to help ease stress. I think I was of uh, the generation of athletes who would suck it up and rub some dirt on it, was what my coach used to say. And, and so, you know, I think that with some of us who are providers in the field, the reality is there's no science behind that. There is nothing that says, you know, the reality is this is going to make you the best athlete. The 2022 Beijing Olympic Games end on Sunday, February 20th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. American athlete Nathan Chen set a men's figure skating record at the Olympics, beating his number one rival Yuzuru Hanyu. The Japanese double Olympic champion missed the podium due to a rare blunder on Tuesday. Hanyu has been widely seen as one of the best men's figure skaters of all time, but the 27-year-old skater missed his opening quadruple jump. He said the cause of the error was a hole in the ice. Salt Lake City native Chen wiped Hanyu's previous record with a stunning score of 113.97, topping the men's short program. Chen called it redemption for his flop four years ago. In 2018, Chen was already eager to compete with Hanyu for gold, but a disastrous short program put him in 17th place. This time in Beijing, Chen has been unstoppable. His rivalry with Hanyu was considered a highlight of the Winter Olympics, but it may end up falling short for the second consecutive Winter Games.
U.S.-born figure skater gave up her American citizenship to compete for China. But she fell during her Olympic debut, and now the Chinese public are decrying her performance and her family ties. Some are taking aim at her father, an artificial intelligence scientist who recently returned from the U.S. to China. Let's take a look. For U.S.-born figure skater Zhu Yi, the 2022 Beijing Winter Games is the first Olympic experience on Team China. And she seemed eager to impress the Chinese public. But netizens in the country turned on the athlete after she fell in two events at the Olympics. For the netizens watching the Olympics in China, they took a very serious political stance. They don't see the competition as a platform to engage with foreign athletes in a friendly way. They see it as a battle of shame and glory between nations. Drew failed to land two separate jumps and finished last in the women's short program team event on Sunday. The next day, she fell again, twice, in the women's free skating event. Her flop knocked China down from third to fifth in the team standings. Drew faced immediate backlash on Chinese social media. Hashtags like Drew Yi has fallen and Drew Yi messed up trended on China's Twitter-like platform Weibo, gaining more than 200 million views within a few hours on Monday. One netizen wrote, how dare you skate for China? And another comment brought up her former U.S. citizenship and her inability to speak fluent Chinese, questioning, is she an undercover spy? But why is the Chinese public so furious? Tong says it's because the Communist Party has politicized sports. So this makes Jews' competition, to a certain extent, no longer a sports competition, but a highly political task given by the party. Because in most of these netizens' concepts, they think only athletes who get good ratings can show they're patriotic. In addition, critiquing Drew's performance, other Chinese netizens have raised questions about her selection for the Olympic team, pointing the finger at her family ties. Drew's father, Drew Songchun, is a well-known artificial intelligence scientist. He reportedly left the U.S. and joined a university in China under Beijing's Thousand Talents Plan. Beijing claims its program is to recruit leading international scientific experts. But both the U.S. and Canada have warned it's a tool for Chinese espionage to steal new technologies. Nevertheless, the fierce backlash against Drew exposed a persistent problem in Chinese sports, the pressure to perform. Medal counts have long been touted by Beijing as a sign of national strength. These Western countries don't have such a strong political mindset. Their citizens won't compare your athletics level with the level of your patriotism. They are two different concepts, but in the CCP's propaganda of brainwashing, it confuses the two and uses this kind of national sentiment to add legitimacy to its own regime. Later, the hashtag criticizing Drew on Chinese social media was seemingly censored, but the harsh critiques and pressure seems to have gotten the better of Drew Yi. She was seen bursting into tears on the ice during the latest event on Monday, saying she couldn't hold it back. The Beijing Winter Olympics have started, even if the country's human rights abuses have not ended. Twice as many Americans approve of the U.S. diplomatic boycott than disapprove. And now, some big companies are facing the moral dilemma of sponsoring the games in a country where the regime is accused of genocide. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has the details. Nearly half of Americans approve of President Biden's diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. That's according to a recent Pew study. The boycott aims to highlight the Chinese regime's human rights violations in Xinjiang. Now Olympic sponsors are facing some pushback. Five of the top sponsors are American-owned, including Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Intel, Procter & Gamble, and Visa. 
Several of them say they support diversity and inclusivity. At the Coca-Cola Company, diversity, equity, and inclusion is in our DNA. It is at the heart of our values and the bedrock of our company's culture. But now some question whether the companies are serious about their social responsibility. How can you have corporate responsibility and diversity and you know, equal rights, but then you're going to support a genocide? That makes no sense to me. Assistant Professor of Business Law Nicholas Creel says last April, Coca-Cola issued a statement against some voting legislation in the United States. Now we go and see that they're very happily advertising the, uh, the Olympics here in communist China. And uh, it shows pretty clearly that if they're willing to do that, all for the idea of making more money, because it's going to be quite a lucrative advertising opportunity. So why would companies risk losing their reputation and hurting their brand image? They are really all that worried about ethics, and they're more just worried about profit when it comes down to it. But sponsors are facing some real problems. Sponsorships are locked in for many years, and sponsors can't choose which games they're going to join. Professor of Sport Management Rick Burton says it's always difficult for Olympic sponsors because they know there are going to be people protesting something in each host country. If Coca-Cola came out in the United States and said that they were against gun violence, um, there would be a lot of people who buy guns and, and believe in the right to carry guns who might believe that Coca-Cola was attacking them and suddenly would not buy Coca-Cola. Creel says with corporate social responsibility, Human rights abuses can't be ignored. And if that's something that we can ignore, then it looks like we could ignore literally anything else. China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo says he hopes the public will vote with their dollars. You all just agree not to shop at the companies that are, uh, you know, supporting genocide or supporting forced labor, or we could, you know, have letter writing campaigns and things, but I really wish the public would take a stance on this. According to the International Olympic Committee's charter, the Olympics promote a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. One thing to watch out for future games is whether the IOC changes how it chooses host countries. Beijing. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. American officials say they are losing patience with Beijing. Chinese officials pledged in a 2020 trade deal to purchase hundreds of billions in U.S. products, but are not following through on the promise. U.S. officials called on Monday for, quote, concrete action from China to make good on promises Beijing made to buy $200 billion worth of U.S. goods. The purchases were supposed to have happened in 2020 and 2021 as part of a so-called phase one trade deal signed by former President Donald Trump. The officials said Washington was losing patience with Beijing, which had, quote, not shown real signs in recent months that it would close the gap in the two-year purchase commitments that expired at the end of last year. A spokesperson for China's foreign ministry responded on Monday, saying the two sides should work together to resolve conflicts. The agreement, signed by former President Trump in January 2020, diffused a nearly three-year trade war between the world's two largest economies. But the U.S. has since repeatedly called on China to deliver on its promises. Here's U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai in October. These are commitments that China made. Uh, they are commitments that um, our uh, businesses um, and uh, workers in certain sectors have looked to. Um, and um, um, we will have to address where this relationship goes from this starting point. Monday's comments come a day before the U.S. government is due to release full-year trade data that analysts expect to show a significant shortfall 
in China's pledge to increase purchases of U.S. farm and manufactured goods, energy, and services. The United States reached an agreement with Japan to lift the 25% tariff on Japanese steel products. The tariff was imposed by former President Trump. That's according to U.S. Department of Commerce officials. The agreement will allow over 1 million tons of Japanese steel imports per year into the U.S. without being subject to tariffs. Still to come, nighttime bars and music venues in Denmark are celebrating the end of the country's pandemic restrictions. Authorities say they no longer consider COVID-19 a socially critical disease. That and more on NTD News. French President Emmanuel Macron is in Kiev today to meet with Ukrainian leadership after long talks with Putin on Monday. Macron said the coming days will be decisive in de-escalating the Ukraine crisis. In another diplomatic push to avert war, French President Emmanuel Macron has traveled to Kiev for talks with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The visit comes one day after a five-hour meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. The first summit between Putin and a Western leader since Russia's military buildup. In a joint news conference in the Kremlin, Macron said the coming days will be crucial in the Ukraine standoff. We have to rebuild concrete solutions together because we live on opposite sides of common and shared borders. So the coming weeks must be devoted to this. Putin also pledged that Moscow is working to find a compromise that suits everyone, but repeated warnings about the threat of war should Ukraine join NATO. If Ukraine would be NATO and tries to retake Crimea militarily, European countries will automatically be drawn into military conflict with Russia. Putin described the meeting as substantive, saying that some of Macron's proposals could form the basis of further joint steps. A French official earlier claimed that during the talks, Putin promised not to take new military moves around Ukraine for the time being. But the Kremlin immediately clarified that Russia and France haven't yet struck a deal on de-escalating tensions. Macron's ideas presented are rational and can be a base for continuing work. But in many ways it depends on what aspect his talks in Kiev and further discussions with his NATO colleagues will take place. Prior to Macron's visit, Ukraine's foreign minister has vowed the country would not cross the red line. We are open to dialogue, ready to negotiate. We are looking for the diplomatic solution, but we will not cross our red lines and no one will be able to force us to cross them. Putin said he would hold talks with Macron by phone again after his meeting with Ukraine's leaders. As tensions mount between Ukraine and Russia, some Ukrainian women are turning to self-defense classes. Others are turning to prayer. During the week, Victoria Makarova from the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv works as a construction manager. On the weekends, the 44-year-old is learning how to be a soldier. As tensions between Ukraine and Russia mount, women like Makarova are taking courses to learn how to use guns, do first aid and perform martial arts skills. We're not going to run away and abandon our beloved city of Kharkiv. This means we have to learn how to defend it. 
Demand for such courses is growing, says Igor Pushkarev, a veteran of the 2014 conflict in eastern Ukraine and who organizes military training courses for citizens. Every time Russian aggression grows, the people's motivation increases. They obviously want to refresh their skills and learn new ones. Fears have been mounting in the West that Russia may try to attack Ukraine after gathering tens of thousands of troops near the border. Russia has denied plans to invade, but says it could take unspecified military measures if its demands, including a promise by NATO to never admit Ukraine, are not met. Ukraine has sought to calm fears of an invasion. On Sunday, Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba urged people to ignore apocalyptic predictions, saying his country was strong and had unprecedented international support. His words, however, are not much comfort to those living on the eastern front line. Lilia Evsinyanka lives in Signalma village, around 18 miles from Donetsk, near the front line. She believes that it is the Ukrainian forces who are planning an offensive rather than the Russians. Of course we rely on Russia. What else can we do? No one will help us except Russia. No one. We are at the front line. We will be affected more than others. And other women in Signalma say they are living in fear. How can we flee? If it starts whizzing, how can we flee? Will we hide in a basement or just in the corner? I don't hide in a basement now. More often I just sit in some corner and pray. We pray every day for peace. Copenhagen's nighttime industry is toasting the end of masking and curfews in Denmark. The Scandinavian country lifted most of its pandemic restrictions last week after authorities said they no longer consider COVID-19 a socially critical disease. Denmark eased most of its pandemic restrictions last week for all bars, restaurants and music venues. Revelers in Copenhagen gathered to celebrate. I like this free atmosphere. I like this being, I, I, I can be myself. I don't have to take care. Yeah, that's, what I, that's, that's my feeling now. Officials say the Omicron surge is not placing a heavy burden on the health system. One of the restrictions halted is the vaccine pass check for entry into nightclubs. We feel it in the whole society because uh, it's like, uh, wow, we, we're free again now. We, we really have to go out and have fun and go to the theaters, go to the cinemas. Uh, so we hope that uh, we'll be back in, in the normal uh, within maybe two, three weeks. This centuries-old watering hole is one of the oldest in the Danish capital, but during the pandemic, it closed for five months. Across town, the sounds of live jazz wafted through the air at the drop-in music venue. It's crazy, crazy. <laughs> and we're looking forward to this weekend where everything is back to normal. It's been two years, so it's, we don't even know how to do it. <laughs> Another notable change is the dropping of masks. Authorities now only recommend mask wearing in hospitals, healthcare facilities, and nursing homes. No mouthpiece. That's almost the best part. <laughs> we can dance again. We can be out late. No restrictions for closing hour. Um, and we can be as much as people I would like in the room. <laughs> the 11 p.m. closing limit has also been lifted. In downtown Copenhagen, Mojo Blues Bar already has plans for nightly shows in the coming weeks. I think people will uh, kind of storm the place uh, in the next few weeks and then it probably will stabilize and uh, people will still be happy to go out. I have 90 
90 to 100 people in here, so it's not very hard to fill it up. Uh, and of course, I would like full house every day. <laughs> Denmark has seen more than 50,000 new cases per day in recent weeks. But the number of COVID-19 patients in hospital intensive care units has declined. Ireland will hold its flagship St. Patrick's Day parade in Dublin next month, following a three-year hiatus. The country hopes to kickstart its tourism industry, which was hit hard by the pandemic. The celebration usually begins on March 17th and runs for five days. Before the pandemic, it attracted some 500,000 revelers from around the world. But it was one of the first major events canceled in 2020. Due to travel restrictions, the number of overseas visitors to and from Ireland has plummeted from over 20 million in 2019 to 5 million in 2021. This year, the tourist season will kick off again in the capital. That's after the government lifted almost all COVID-19 restrictions last month, backed by the highest booster vaccination rates in Europe. Remaining restrictions, such as wearing a mask, will end later this month. But as throughout the EU, a COVID vaccination certificate will still be required to enter the country. A pub claiming to be the oldest in Britain is closing. E. Old Fighting Cocks in St. Albans, just north of London, claims it's been open since the year 793. If that's true, it means the establishment survived the Black Death Plague that ravaged Europe. The owner blames COVID-19 for making conditions too difficult to remain open. He admits things were getting tough even before the pandemic. Though, in fact, a quarter of the United Kingdom's pubs closed between 2008 and 2018 as people ditched them to drink in restaurants or at home. Yield Fighting Cox is named after the 11th century building it is located in, which used to host fighting, cockfighting. Guinness previously recognized the pub as the oldest in England. The company rested the title in 2000 when it determined records that old are impossible to verify. The largest light festival in Europe has opened in Denmark with 50 installations. Set against the cold, dark Nordic winter every February, the Copenhagen Light Festival transforms the city into a celebration of light art and illuminating experiences. This footage contains flashing images. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report. The Danish capital is transformed by their annual program of light works by both Danish and international artists and designers. The 2.3 miles long green beam shot across the night sky, announcing the festival has officially begun. This 36 feet long and 50 feet wide design by a French artist is called Phoenix. The artist says Phoenix is sending a message of hope, life after death and the possibility of rising from the ashes. It's accompanied by an audio soundscape consisting of birdsong and atmospheric ambient sounds. The chairman of the board of curators praises the work is, that has uh, been done. This is just an immense uh, job these artists from France have been doing in order to conquer the storm and the water and the cold. And now we are here. I hope people will appreciate this. I hope that they will think about the beauty of nature as well. Following the repeal of COVID restrictions in Denmark, organizers hope to welcome more visitors than last year, when more than 500,000 visited over a three-week period. One Danish artist created a work from 5,000 pieces of yellow plastic found in nature. They were cleaned and assembled into a 12-foot-tall globe called a dozen sun. An artist from Italy said it's really nice to have art and lights in the street. 
Many were clearly emotional after years with pandemic restrictions. Simply, it does something to your heart. It opens you, uh, opens your mind. It makes a, a feeling inside of you of uh, optimism, because the winter in the last two years has been kind of closing, and now we are opening up, and this light is helping you. The majority of the lightworks are placed along the quay and on the bicycle bridges in what is one of the most bike-friendly cities in the world. As a new element this year, many works will also be turned on in the early morning when people go to work. The event runs until February 27th. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. Use it or lose it is a pretty good motto when it comes to bone strength and density. Let's get a few tips on how to get moving. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. What do you need for strong bones? Of course, calcium and vitamin D are essential in building and maintaining bone mineral density. But you can't draw the line there. To really optimize bone strength, you need something you can't supplement real muscle. You don't need a ton of it either. Being jacked up and muscle bound isn't necessary, but some degree of muscle strength is. Why? There are two main reasons. The first is that muscle offers support for bones. It can help protect them from bumps and breaks and provide some essential resiliency. But perhaps more importantly, the process of building muscle can actually make your bones stronger and boost bone density. Putting stress on your bones through resistance training forces bones to respond to the pressure by becoming stronger and denser. And you don't necessarily need to start squatting heavy weights or doing shoulder presses either. You can get the benefits with light, regular resistance exercises such as walking or wall push-ups. The key really is to make it a part of your daily routine. If you can get some load-bearing exercise for at least 30 minutes per day, you are off to a great start. Try going for a walk around the block or heading back and forth up the stairs. That will do a lot for your bones. But it's not even necessary to bundle that 30 minutes all up in one either. You can distribute them in 5 minute intervals throughout the day if it's easier for you. Sitting less and being more active is important for your bones. Make exercise a part of your bone routine to go along with calcium and vitamin D. Try to include some more protein in your diet as well. That will help to build the muscle surrounding the bone. Thanks for watching. At NTD, we're honored to be your source for the news. Catch us again tonight at 6.30 Eastern. In New York City, I'm Kevin Hogan.